0: I just, my goal has always been to take these conversations out of the therapist office and into our living rooms and our boardrooms and our relationships, because I've always thought if we could have that transparency, then we could undo some of the misconceptions around that.
1: Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. Episode of the Find Your Voice podcast. I talk to a longtime friend of mine, and also a man whose work has changed my life more than he probably even knows. In fact, for those of you who have followed my personal story over the past few years, you've watched me go from being trapped in an abusive marriage and totally shut down to filing for divorce, dismantling my life, going through a personal crisis, to now being happily married expecting a child any day. My life has completely transformed. And many of you have asked me the question, how did you heal so fast? Now, fast is a relative term, but from the time of my divorce until now has been about four or five years, somewhere there, depending on how exactly you measure that time period. If you want to know the answer to that question, today's interview is a big step in that direction. Miles Adcox is a speaker Podcast host, business leader, and coach. He's also the CEO of OnSite, which is an internationally known emotional wellness center that delivers life changing personal growth workshops. We're going to talk a lot about OnSite on the episode today. He is also the founder of Inspire Nashville. He works with and consults several NGOs. He's an advisory board member for Musicians on Call, which is an organization that leverages the power of music to help people heal. He's a regular guest presenter on the Dr. Phil show. This is an incredibly accomplished man. But even all of these accolades don't really do today's interview justice because what I want you to know about Miles is he's also a deeply empathetic human, a great listener with a huge heart. And he is the kind of person you want to call when you or someone you know is in a crisis. He's full of wisdom. So I'm so excited for you to hear from him today. We cover topics all the way across the board from mental health to creativity to writing a book. But one of my favorite parts of the episode is where Miles talks about what really helps people produce meaningful change in their lives. It's not what you think. In fact, this might change the way you read books, buy books, and even think about books forever. Don't miss this interview. It's full of gems of wisdom from my friend Miles. So let's dive right in. Hi, Miles. So great to chat with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for
0: having me. Honored to be a part of this.
1: Well, I want to start by asking you the question that we ask everybody that we interview, and that is, what does it mean for you to find your voice?
0: I think finding our voice has become trendy, which I'm excited about. Meaning, there's a, You hear that a lot in this age of social media, where I think our voices get lost through the lens of comparison. So there is there is a new movement and push, particularly from millennials and Z's that are saying you have to find your authentic voice. But what does it mean to me? I think to me, finding my voice happened not when I woke up one morning and realized that I had been imprinted and influenced by the things around me. And they had Uh, impressioned me a way that I was communicating through a filter. And the filter for me was, am I approved by you? Am I okay? Am I liked? That is what happened. Uh, But finding my voice for me wasn't just waking up one day and recognizing that and saying, I've got to start here and move forward with authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability and be true to who I am. I wish it were that easy. Finding my voice for me meant I needed to go back, reconcile the original imprint so that I understood more clearly why I was vulnerable to when the comparison game began to start. And I paid attention to a point where it was detrimental to my emotional health. And when I reconciled some of the original imprints, in other words, I had the courage to go back, it gave me the freedom to go forward in a different and new way. So finding our voice to me is reconciling our past so that we can live Mm -hmm. and set and chart a new course for the future.
1: That's amazing. What a great definition. I know you've watched, you know, hundreds of other people too, as they've come through your program on site, me being one of them to go through a similar process. I don't know that you would call it necessarily finding your voice, but that's definitely an element of it. What are some similarities that you've seen or, just consistent themes about like what are the voices that imprint us from an early age, and then why is it so hard to hmm, to like break away from them?
0: I think as we're just coming through the mental health lens, which is the space that I spend a lot of time in, I believe we had a narrow view of emotional trauma until about ten years ago, and over the last decade, I've really seen culture begin to embrace and what we've learned and are learning about trauma and how it impacts how it imprints human beings really just skyrocket. Having said that, I think we still have a long way to go. Yeah. But I don't think any of us as human beings escape adversity. If you just want to take trauma out of the out of the picture for a minute, because that word can be a little loaded. I don't think anybody escapes adversity. And in today's climate, none of us escape stress. And ultimately, compound stress combined with adversity creates these imprints that can manifest into trauma. And that's why I think we can't ignore it into how it dictates who we are and who we're becoming. Some of the common ones are really well intended parenting. That's one of the most common things I see that ends up being a low ceiling for people who want to raise their emotional intelligence or their EQ is that we are told pre-verbal and then particularly in our, our most relevant development ages to not feel certain emotions Hmm. that we shouldn't cry. Uh, and there is an effort, a significant effort on the parent to do everything we can to, sidestep the discomfort that comes when you have an overly emoting child. And I can say that now as a parent, I used to think this stuff in theory, yeah. now I'm a new parent and I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> this is difficult because when my child is in pain, emotional pain or crying or frustrated, it is, it hurts my soul. Mm. And I have to really take a step back to put my words into action because my words know what to say. My words are, it's okay to be sad sometimes. It's okay to cry, but man, my body is just convulsing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything to make it stop.
0: <laughs> I've really had to process that and learn how to get comfortable with emotion. Now I will say, having worked in the mental health space for 20 years, I'm pretty comfortable with emotion from adults that are strangers that are in our care that are emoting maybe for the first time or grieving something they've never been given permission to grieve. I'm, I can hold that space for that pretty well. But when you put it into real terms with our my kids, it, it stretches me. So that's probably one of the most common is I see people who are told there are emotions that are OK and some that aren't. And therefore, we we stunt those emotions that aren't and we feel abnormal when we feel them. So we tuck them away. And we we move through adolescence and on into early adulthood, only showing the world a part of ourselves. Yeah. That, that to me feels disconnected and unintegrated. So therefore,
1: people yeah. later in their
0: 20s and 30s and, and hopefully help them, as you said, what you're saying, find your voice, is ultimately just get integrated again.
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's good. It really resonates with me, too, because when I think of the emotion I wasn't allowed to feel. It's different for everybody. And I also think this is gendered in some ways in our culture, but for men, it's tears that they, you know, so often for men and so often for women, it's anger. That was definitely the emotion I was not allowed to feel. And I grew up for so much of my life with crippling anxiety. And it wasn't until I came to onsite that I started to put the pieces together that oftentimes anxiety is another denied emotion. And for me, so often my anxiety was, an unwillingness to admit to myself that i was mad at someone or mad about something. So, yeah, i don't know. i'm thinking through like my process at onsite and wondering if you have noticed some some tools or resources or i'm sure you have because the program at onsite is so transformative in and of itself. i've been personally twice and i would consider both times my both of my times there as pivotal moments in my life. But what are some things you watch people do or try that get them out of the rut of it's not okay to cry or I'm not allowed to be mad?
0: I don't think, and thank you for sharing that, by the way. I I appreciate what you shared about reflecting on your experience because I believe we started, when we started looking at onsite culturally, like we're not the experts here to serve people, and they will learn from us, from our information, our training, and our education, and hopefully walk out into life and do life better. When we mm. when we pushed pause on that and said, we're just trying to bring the humanity back into emotional health and healing. What that meant was we have as much to learn from the people who come as guests to our programming and workshops as we offer them. And I would say that that is true for you. Uh, meaning We had a friendship, and I don't remember the timeline, but I think it was, yeah, it was before and during, certainly after. And yeah, Yeah. I've worked with you professionally with your gifting in terms of of consulting and coaching with content and writing. Mm. And there were things I learned that you took the content and said, you know, have you thought about this? Or what do you think about this? And it helped to me give it more tactical tools and resources because we were, Often made it this elusive kind of um, artistry meets science meets spirituality, and we can create this beautiful bubble for this experience for people to offload pain, reconcile, and redeem their stories. But what does that mean in terms of what are the three things you can do to help sustain this? And so I think writing is one of them. That's what I bring up. Something I learned from you. Yeah, um, I've always known the science behind journaling and gratitude list, but when you encourage people with your prompts to put it into daily practice, whether anybody reads it or not, I think it's, well, I've seen it be incredibly valuable with me and with our guests at Onsite. I think another one is just honest conversations. I don't think our culture is is necessarily wired or built for psychologically safe transparency. And so one of our big jobs is to not just give people a bunch of content. It's how do you Curate and create that so that you can mirror an experience that you hope is a permission slip for people once they walk out of here to take some emotional risk and have deeper conversations with the people that matter the most. So I think writing, I think honest and authentic conversations are probably that I think in a genuine sense of self-awareness and self-reflection and the ability to have a mindful expression both at work and home are are three pretty valuable tools that I hope people walk away with that really put into practice in their life.
1: What, what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions about emotional wellness that maybe prevents people from engaging in this process altogether? And then how have you at onsite worked to fight those misconceptions and invite people into the process?
0: I think probably a couple of the biggest ones that we see are that emotional wellness or the pursuit of emotional health and wellness should be done in secret. Thankfully, the paradigm is shifting on that and it's become somewhat hip and trendy to talk about your pursuit of your mental and emotional health. And I don't say that lightly. I think that's been amazing. It's It's been the fuel and the catalyst that we needed for culture to embrace the concept and stop making this a broken person's pursuit, but making this a human being's pursuit. It, it almost brings the humanness back into, or the humanity back into being human. So I think that's a big misconception is that it's okay to share the parts of your life that feel stuck and that you're struggling with, or maybe even some things that have happened to you in the anonymity uh, and privacy of a, of the the back room of someone who is required by law to never talk about it. Now, are there things that I think are important uh, to talk about confidentially? Absolutely. With a trusted source? Absolutely. I'm not completely picking on our profession. I just, my goal has always been to take these conversations out of the therapist office and into our living rooms and our boardrooms and our relationships. Because I've always thought if we could have that transparency, then we could undo some of the misconceptions around that. I believe another part is the way we talk about mental health and emotional wellness. I think we are as guilty as the faith communities in botching our ability to reach people with how we language our passion and our expertise. Meaning it, it has, it's, it's almost, if you hear people talking about it that live in that space, you're almost talking in code and same with, Faith leaders, particularly in the Christian space, who speak Christianese and want to reach a non-faith-based audience, but they don't speak the same language. And the really gifted ones know how to neutralize the language and make it applicable and digestible for everybody else. And that's what I think we've tried to do at Onsite, is neutralize the language, take the pathology out of it, talking about this as a human condition and not as here's what's wrong with you. It's it's more, here's what's right with you that you'd pursue a better version of yourself.
1: Yeah. That's so great. I'm so grateful, like you mentioned, that these conversations around emotional and mental wellness are becoming more common and also for a resource like Onsite to be available, not only to me, but my entire community of friends, our entire community of friends, we've been so impacted by it. And I sometimes forget, I think, being so comfortable in that environment now that there's a whole world outside of (laughs) our group of friends who don't talk the way that we talk, you know, or who don't have the kind of, they don't experience the freedom on a day-to-day basis to come to a dinner party and just be like, you know what, I'm just not okay today. And I could use some help. Can you, you know, can you listen to me? So I, I feel like Onsite has played a huge role in helping us create that kind of environment that's much more human, and really grateful for that. So thank you so much for that work that you do.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks.
1: Where do you see creativity and or writing intersecting with emotional well being? Do you see a connection between those two things?
0: Very much. Yeah. Just to elaborate a little bit on what I shared earlier about what I learned from you and and then also paying attention to how it impacts people in our space. It organically, or maybe by no mistake, Onsite as an offering has evolved to be a significant resource for the creative community. Now, I had a lot of relationships, business and personal in the music industry. And some of that you could say is geography being in a music hotspot or hub. Our main campus is located in Nashville. But you can't argue with the impact that the creative community has had on us and that we've had on the creative community. As a matter of fact, I was at an event on Friday night, a music event, and someone from the music industry in a more traditional role was introducing me to a friend who was there for the event from another industry and said, he said, what, is, what do you do? Are you in the music industry? And my friend who was an artist said, he is in the music industry. He's on the mental health side of music. <laughs> and I just thought, man, how far we've come uh, from yeah. me standing backstage at the Grammys 10 years ago. And the people who knew me were scared to talk to me because I was the mental health guy. And, <laughs> and now I feel like I'm part of the framework or the fabric of that whole community. So I think uh, because we use a highly creative process. It matches well with creativity. Mm. We don't, that's one of the challenges is that our brains, when we consume information, if you think about the brain from the top down, the logical, rational reasoning part of our brains want the three steps to a better life, which is why most self-help books sell when they're written that way. Mm. But the change process requires the more nuanced exposure and experience. And those books don't sell as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's (laughs) It's, true.
0: One of the reasons I'm having a hard time writing, finishing mine, (laughs) Uh, because I want to write something authentic to the change process because it's not a a, a three-step roadmap. And Mm. it requires us to get into the bottom third, which is a bit more evasive and elusive. But when when we get away from this overly packaged curriculum, which I'm a fan of good curriculum, don't get me wrong. And we allow some of the art and creativity to breathe in the change process. I've seen it transform lives in, in beautiful ways. So I think creativity, when given permission, that's, that's the problem I've had with a lot of the mental health efforts, traditional behavioral and mental health efforts that I've been a part of helping consult, is that we're not even paying attention to our own research in terms of mm. what, what it requires for people to change, because it's hard to manage. It's hard to sell. And it's hard to package. So it's not an easy effort to do something where you're saying, I'm going to let creativity have as much of a breath and a voice in this space as I am all the other components in the change process. But we try to do it. Wow. When it comes to writing, I'd probably be a good case study. (laughs) I I know you're not asking that because you know (laughs) some of the challenges I've had in my own process. But ironically, I've seen people who come to us now who are either in – authors or songwriters or screen they write for a movie and films or movie and te- television is they'll come to us when they're in a season of creative block. Yeah. Just that, for that. Yeah. And they, and, and they walk away with the results that they invested in. And in a way I, I, you would think me being as close to our process as anybody could be that I would, that would benefit me in trying to write. And in some ways it has, and in some ways we it's hindered me, which I've got a theory <laughs> about but well, anyway, you may you may be able to help me with that.
1: Well, yeah, I actually really do want to dive into talking about the work on your book, in part because I think it's going to be helpful for people who are listening to hear some of the real challenges around what it takes to write a book, and in part because your book, I think, is so important and needs to be out there in the world. So for those both of those reasons, I want to talk about it. But I, before we move in that direction, I just want to say one thing briefly, because you made this point about the top third of our brain and the bottom third of our brain and where emotional healing and wellness really comes from. And my mind immediately went to the research around where our creative writing comes from, which is that bottom third of our brain. Mm. And what's interesting about that is we spend most of our lives and most of our day in the top part of our brain, in the prefrontal cortex. It's how we survive in the modern world. And I talk about this all the time when I speak from stages, but it's so hard for us to leave that part, that very predictable, controlled, productive, efficient part of our brain and move to the part of our brain that's much more chaotic and confusing and nonlinear, and to trust that that it's going to you know, be a positive experience for us. And I hadn't really made this connection until now, but now when I heard you say that, I thought that's really true for writing. And I talk about it all the time that we have to learn how to drop out of our prefrontal cortex and into our limbic system if we're ever going to get any great writing done. And And it has been true for my emotional healing, too, that the longer we ignore what's going on in our limbic system, the more that stuff comes out sideways. (laughs) And, you know, we we can sort of think that we're all locked up and under control. But, you know, that's where our earliest experiences and oftentimes traumatic experiences are living. So I'm really glad that you made that connection.
0: Yeah. Thank you for making it even clearer. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Okay. So let's talk about your writing process. You and I have done some work together, both on a book that I really, whatever iteration of the book, you know, comes out at the end. I really do hope this will be a book that people can uh, go to Barnes and Noble and purchase someday. And also, we did some work on a TED Talk that you delivered that was beautiful and unlike anything I've ever seen. So I'd love to talk about both of those processes and kind of like what have been some of the Maybe let's start with the challenges. What have been some of the big challenges that have come up for you in the writing process?
0: It's surprising that in most areas of my life, I feel the work that I've been fortunate to have been trained in and helped curate and create, and in many cases help deliver, has benefited my life. And my leadership in ways that you would hope if you're going to invest that much of your time into into something for others that you that me, I, I would definitely hope that I would be a recipient of that For in order for it to feel in integrity for me to deliver it. And I can honestly say that I have been I'm not I'm not perfect and I don't pursue that anymore, but I can give you a list of areas that have excelled as I've invested in this space. One area that has really been a challenge for me, and I don't know why I separate it out because it feels very human as well, is the writing process. Now, I don't, I don't tie my challenges with the writing process fully to my um, emotional and personal growth process, because I think in some ways, some of where I've been tripped up is over-intellectualizing it and and being distracted. And so I'm, I'm diagnosed and have been for a long time uh, with, with ADD. And, and I, and I struggle with the discipline. Uh, You know, I've got friends that are writers. You're, you're one of them that are very disciplined and I know you've probably worked with all kinds and I'm sure we talked about this. I know uh, when I was working, but it's, it's interesting because my friends of mine, friends of mine who write full time and, and teach and speak and lead workshops and the things that come with that, They often envy the regularity and stability of what I have with my company. And then me in what it takes to show up, be present and and run an effort like this envies the margin and space that they have with being able to have a lot of downtime because I find that I don't either, I'm not intentional enough about creating it, but I'm not a scheduled writer. I don't, or at least not yet. Nothing's impossible. But my effort so far to like, okay, I'm gonna wake up at 5 a.m. every morning and write for one hour before I start my day. I've had a hard time, Ali, with my brain attaching to that and being effective in that space. And what I've and I'm just being fully transparent here. I and and what it's done is it turns up the volume on the very things that have become great strategies for my life and my leadership, like insecurity, like my inner editor. Like, and which, as you I'm sure you know and see more than anybody, those things can shut down your creativity in a hurry, and that's kind of what happens is I find myself asking questions from an old narrative that is led by what I know to be insecurity, but I haven't been able to. I don't ever I'm not a big believer in that you conquer that. I think you just change your relationship with it. I haven't fully changed my relationship in a way that I'm ready to say, here's how you do it as, as a writer. I still, I'm still kind of that really struggling, let's say struggling, that haunted creative in that space. But I will say since we've worked together, I'm growing a lot, probably not at the pace that I would prefer to report back on, but I've had some great subtle changes and my confidence has gone up, which means my editor has gone down, but it's still there and it aggravates me to death.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's one of those things and you touched on this, but our inner editors, I don't think ever fully go away. We do learn to change our relationship with them and learn to kind of strategically create spaces where the inner, inner editor gives us some breathing room. And there's so many things I want to say to this, but one of the threads I want to follow is that the writing process in that way really does mirror the healing process. And you've taught me so much about the healing process and Onsite has taught me so much that I I just have started to see this connection that I'm like, this is it's profound really, that to create space in our lives for writing, you're dropping out of your frontal cortex, you're dropping into your limbic system, you're giving yourself permission to live in the Chaos and in the questions and and a lot of the phrases that you're saying right now are phrases we hear writers repeat to us over and over again. You know things like, "I'm confident in every other area of my life, and why do I feel so insecure in this?" And especially coming from people who are really, really gifted communicators, and for some reason when they sit down to the page, they feel like the words don't come or don't flow. So you know how do we create a space that's safe enough that we can try? to put words on the page that maybe aren't grammatically correct or or don't follow the five paragraph structure of essays that we learned in high school or that we feel like we might get a bad grade on, but still trust that the idea is kind of working itself out. And I think that mirrors the healing process in this really cool way where the healing process is similar, right? You drop out of your frontal cortex, you stop overthinking things, you drop into your limbic system, you trust the truth of what your body is telling you then you kind of spit some words out and you're like, is that, am I, am I getting at it? Is that quite right? Even though it might not make perfect logical sense, it's all part of the evolution and the unfolding of our true voice or our true self. So I love that I'm hearing from you some of those same familiar phrases that we hear from authors all the time. And I especially love that our listeners are hearing that from you because I think there's this misconception that people get where they think if only I had a platform or if only I had an audience or if only I was XYZ person, or if only I had this credential or this accolade, then I would feel like I could be a real writer. And my experience has been that's couldn't be further from the truth. It's the the inner critic and the inner editor almost gets louder and more critical when you're in a position where more people have, you, you have more visibility around your words. So yeah, I just appreciate you sharing that vulnerably.
0: Well, and, and I think something else that is you were processing came up for me, and that is that uh, it's it's odd, or maybe not, it, it feels that way, that I I'm confident that I have a process that will support you if you're it's you meaning just whoever you is that will support someone if they're struggling to write yeah. <laughs> and that process that I deliver is not, it's not a hundred percent. It's not cause I, and, and here's what I think about that. This is what I was about to reflect on earlier is I think sometimes most of the people I work with uh, aren't that versed in reflecting on their narrative, their story, their history, their diversity in a graceful, empathetic way. That's a skill that you learn uh, when practiced and that you can build that muscle. And then I think sometimes there are people like me that you can be so close to it all the time that you can turn it against you and become over analytical and almost do a deep dive on everything. And that's a slippery slope too. I'm careful with saying that because it it's such a good escape for people who don't like looking at stuff that they're easy to say, I don't want to study my ballot <laughs> stuff, but people that profession, that's not what I'm saying, but I am saying there are people like me who work in my space who can tend to over apply the tools to a point yeah. where you can kind of get stuck.
1: Yeah. I can totally see that happening. One thing I'll add to just to this overall conversation is that there, there were a couple of things you listed as far as what's keeping you stuck in the writing process that are, they have some really practical applications that you could apply. Like these are things again, that we hear from writers all the time. Things like we work with a lot of writers actually who are in your position, who are running full-time companies and have a family at home. And so there's nowhere you go in your life where somebody doesn't need something from you. And It makes it really challenging to just carve out an amount of time that you can spend on developing your ideas. And so much of those ideas are developed in white space. So, yeah, so one of the things we convince writers to do is, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, but just a little bit of consistency. It doesn't, I don't like to use the word discipline because people will tell me, like, I don't have. I don't have discipline or I do have discipline, but just a little bit of consistency around the writing practice that even if it's two minutes a day or five minutes a day or seven minutes a day that your alarm goes off and you set a timer for yourself and whatever's going on, you just, you know, step outside as if you were taking a phone call and basically process whatever's going on at the time. It's just a a practice of learning how to put words to what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and over time, that really does create a ritual where it doesn't feel so daunting or overwhelming or, or impossible to sit down to the computer or sit down to a piece of paper and start to put some words to what's going on.
0: I say on that, what do you feel? Because that, that is an area that I feel like when I was saying I'm making some changes and that has been a benefit to to. Do that. I've not done it as consistency. I'd like, but I've certainly done it. But I'll notice that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that I will. I'll do that. And then I mostly it's not in flow. And that's why I don't think I've stayed with it long enough. But I will make myself write something if it's a sentence, a paragraph or 500 words. I had this assignment because I've got a a coach that I work with a business coach and I pretty much got her working specifically with me on this project now. And so she's been trying out different methods and this is one of them. And it was interesting as I was doing this for about two weeks at 5am in the morning. And I, I hadn't quite gotten into flow, but I was proud of myself for getting consistency on paper, like you just said. And then in the middle of it, I'm being interviewed for a, a magazine or a journal or a yeah magazine. And it's a, I'm excited about it. It's a cover story. i never been on a cover story. So I'm like, oh, this is neat. And they say, oh yeah, by the way, you need to write 2,500 words as part of this that will be the feature article. And I was like, oh boy, because all my mind went to, if I'm not able to get this book done, how am I going to write this article? <laughs> and as it goes, the deadline kept crawling, 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 and suddenly it was here. And it was a day and a half out and I had to get them the copy. And I sat down and wrote about 4,000 words. Wow. What is it about? And so thankfully my my uh, business coach let that count for yeah. <laughs> a lot of it. Will be but what is, have you seen that, like the pressure of a deadline and how that can impact somebody's creativity? Oh,
1: for sure. I think what happens with the pressure of a deadline is we just realize you don't have any, you don't have any way to wriggle out of it anymore. So I don't think it's like a magic Ticket to getting writing done, but it is, you you sort of start to take yourself seriously in that moment because you realize what's at stake and what the consequences will be Mm -hmm. if you don't complete, if you don't reach the deadline. But also, another thing that I'll say is everybody is a little bit different when it comes to writing and creativity and getting in the flow. And I do recommend that authors create some consistency in their life, again, even if it's five minutes a day, because I think what happens over time a challenge I'll often give to writers is I'll say, do that for 30 days and see if the flow doesn't come to you more and more and more as you do it. Oh, having said that, the other thing I'll say is too, is everybody's a little bit different in the way they get in the flow. And some people do best when they schedule big blocks of time instead of small blocks of time, less consistently. So some people do better writing a book, for example, a manuscript by booking a cabin at the beach for 10 days. That's what I did when I wrote my last book and wrote the whole manuscript in one sitting basically versus getting up for an hour every day and writing at the beginning of the morning. And I still get a lot out of a daily writing practice, but I don't have a daily writing practice that that I carry with me every day for my whole life because my the, my life circumstances don't support that. And I would say yours don't either. You're you're running a big company, you've got a lot of responsibilities, you've got two kids at home and a wife and It doesn't, your life circumstances don't support you taking an hour out of your morning every single morning to get writing done. And even the research shows, you know, the benefit, the positive mental health benefits that we can get from writing, like reduced anxiety and improved mood. The way they structured those studies was by having people write for four consecutive days for 20 minutes at a time. And then they measured the health benefits up to six months later. So the health benefits would stick around for up to six months after the writing practice. To me, that says you don't have to write every single day in order to get the benefits. The purpose of writing every single day is it's like going to the gym every single day. When you build it into your habit and your routine, then you forget that it's a thing that you have to do and you just, you kind of get used to it and you start to love the feeling of it. And when I'm in a, a good writing season for maybe three months at a time, I'll do that. And then when I'm in a busy travel season where I'm on an airplane twice a week, then I don't have the headspace for it. And so then I, I changed my routine.
0: That's super helpful. Yeah. Thank you for that. No. And I will Good. say that, uh, yeah. you know, just backing up to that question, where is your, where does, I think you said one point, where does emotional and mental health overlap with the writing process? I will say today, yes, there are some areas that need significant improvement, but I can tell you five years ago and 10 years ago, those would have made me stop. And, and stay stuck in a rut, asking a big question of, do I have anything to say? And did that does that question still come up? Absolutely. But it's amazing how quick I recover from that now due to all the work that I've done. So I don't stay there very long. Now, have I figured out the rhythm in the process? No. That's why I have such a significant respect for any author. I don't, it doesn't matter if you sold one book or, or 10 million, I have such respect for authors because they they kind of crack the code on a rhythm. I love hearing you say that that rhythm can be different for everybody. But I've learned that it's not, the more mental and emotional health work I've done, personal growth work I've done, I'm constantly learning. It's not about the rip, it's about the repair. And my repair time has become so much quicker. And I still have confidence, even on the heels of telling you, areas where I'm really insecure.
1: That's so great. That's really great to hear and great for other people to hear too, I'm sure. Let's kind of start wrapping up, but I'd love to hear if you have from someone who's in the thick of it right now trying to get your words down, do you have advice for someone who's out there who's either thinking of writing a book or who or who's like, I know a book is not for me, but I've thought of maybe writing my story down to as a way to focus on my emotional health.
0: Yeah, I think One thing that has helped me is to actually, it's vulnerable, but to put myself out there. I think a few years ago, I put myself out there to a handful of safe people who it really wouldn't have mattered uh, if I would have completed the task or not to say that I'm doing this. And then I took a bit of a leap and have... Said it to more people publicly that I'm doing this. I'm 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 writing this book, and there's something about it for me that it it invited more people into the process. Even having the conversation I'm having with you now, in a sense, most people get interviewed for a podcast because they either want to hear a little bit about their story or their expertise in hopes that it might support a listener. And 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 I just went the other way. I'm like, all right, let's turn this in. (laughs) Coach coach (laughs) the (laughs) alley. (laughs) <laughs> and and I, I've learned that the more I let people into that narrative, regardless of my position or platform, you know, who cares about that at the end of the day, I'm then it, it makes me more resilient uh, and it makes me more motivated to complete the task. I recently, I've gone back and forth on Instagram or social media on putting my kids on there. If anything, it's, it's, it's like this living, um, place where, what do you call the old places you used to put photos?
1: Like a scrapbook? Yeah. It's a like a living,
0: up. yeah. Like a living scrapbook <laughs> that I want it. And I, I hope the platform It's a place I can organize to. And now when somebody says, show me a picture of your kid, I'll just pull up Instagram instead of trying to scroll through the ten thousand photos I take a day. And for that reason, I want to celebrate my family and, and my personal life. But I also worry about exposing my kids in a way to a bunch of strangers. I don't know. So I've, I've gone back and forth on that. Well, I decided that I wanted to put my family out there because I'm proud of it and I love it. And uh, I had one of the creepy people set up a, a fake Instagram account with the first 10 pictures were of my kids. Oh, oh. yeah. It gave me just, Oh, that's exactly what it did to me. And My business manager at the time contacted me because she saw it and she said, you know, I work with a lot of people who have, she works in entertainment with people that do things on a much bigger scale than I did. And she said, can I, can I contact my person at Facebook and Instagram to see if we can get you verified to protect you against stuff like this? And she said, the only way, one Uh, thing that would help me do that is if you actually put something more specific about what you do in the title. And what I had in there was, I think, community. because <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, yeah. an inclusive kind of community guy. And she said, I think you need to put author. <laughs> and oh, my goodness, Allie, I just was like, I'm not an author until the day wow. that book is published. It's finished. Mm-hmm. And she was like, are you working on yeah. a book? And I said, yeah. And she said, I, I think you should do it. And I did. Now, I'll be honest. I didn't do it to try to show the world that I was an author. I did it to try to help my family feel safer. Sure. But I did it for a period of time. Yeah. <laughs> and there was something about putting myself out there and saying, this is who I am. Even though it's who I'm becoming, it helped me. And it got me more invested. So that's that was a long way. I'm sorry about the oh, story. It was no, just a long great. way for me to drive home the importance of sharing your dream and vision with other people even when you're not confident that you can pull it off.
1: I love that. What a fantastic way to end. I think and even for you Miles I'll just encourage you. I have been tuned in to you and this book for I think the first time we met was maybe 2 years ago because I I believe in you so much and what you have to say and I want to see you get this book into the world. So it's obviously this is the work I do but also you're a friend and I also really I do see how transformative this message is going to be for so many people and, and I want to see you get there. So I love that you are owning the title of author before, before it's even, the book is even officially here. I think that's going to help you feel the way that you need to feel to sit down to the page, to get the words down that are going to become this book. So thank you for saying that and sharing that. And thanks for sharing that idea with our listeners, because I know there are going to be other people who want to do something similar. So well,
0: thank you. Thanks for your encouragement.
1: Of course. And thank you for your time today. We're so grateful. Any last words that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up?
0: I believe that I believe in my mission and our work, which is to just change lives by enhancing emotional health. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to say this to you, Ali. I think there are people, even though I'm in it and I work in that space, and I think there are people more suited to champion this narrative and mission to pursue a better version of yourself than I am. And I think you're one of them. So I think you've been so transparent with your story and you have evolved into a cultural champion that, anyway, so I just, I appreciate that about you. And man, I'm just glad you've created this to continue to accelerate and invite the people that follow you. Like I do just, more spaces to hear from you and your community. So I really value that.
1: Thank you so much, Miles. Thank you for that. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.